0: 2 Peter chapter 3 this evening, I was able to get some studying in, so you know me, if I have an opportunity to preach, well, by golly, that's probably what I'm going to do. 2 Peter chapter 3, we continue our series, we took a break from it for a few weeks, I guess, Uh, last week we preached the charge to Brother Sean, Brother Brian and Brother James and just spending some time around those men, it didn't work, so we'll see how that goes uh, in the future, but uh, we took a break from the series last week, we pick it back up Running Your Race with a Pace of Grace. What the series is intended to do is to, it's somewhat of a word study on the word grace, but it's trying to avoid spiritual burnout in the Christian life. You see, we get in the middle of working, we get in the middle of the toils and struggles of life, we get in the middle of serving in ministry, and what I found is when I began to do those things in my own strength, I get worn down. But when I do it in God's strength, and God says He has strength for every Christian that wants His strength. uh, If if we'll do it in God's strength, we'll find that we'll never wear down. We're able to go much longer than we thought possible. We're able to do much more than we thought possible. And so the, the series is intended to help us understand the importance of grace... In the Christian's daily life. It's not just something that we taste of at salvation. And abandon there. But it's active in our sanctification. And that's what we're trying to learn about. So 2 Peter chapter 3 this evening. Just two verses. uh, We'll read verse number 17. The Bible says. Ye therefore. Beloved. Seeing ye know these things before. Beware. "...lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness." Now that phrase there, fall from your own steadfastness, it would be wise for you to take note of that. These are people with a desire to stay right with where God wants them to be. "...lest you fall from your own steadfastness." What I envision this Christian as being is a Christian who's trying to do right, wanting to live right... And Peter's encouragement here is you beware so that you in all the best intentions and plans that you have don't fall like some other folks we've spoken about earlier in the chapter. So verse number 18 is his prescription then. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him... Be glory both now and forever. Amen. Now, if you were to study one man's life in the Word of God as a man that probably we could identify with, it would be Peter, right? I know at least that's the disciple that I identify with the most. Some of them other guys put me to shame too much. But Peter's one of them guys that sticks his foot in his mouth all the time. He says the wrong thing at the exact wrong moment. You remember when they were on the Mount of Transfiguration and Jesus is doing something incredible. In fact, Preacher preached a sermon several, several years ago. It's probably the best description of what took place on the Mount of Transfiguration that I've ever heard. And he said what was already on the inside of Jesus just kind of showed through on the outside the veil was removed temporarily and what was always on the inside displayed through and is a phenomenal phenomenal moment in the bible certainly the highlight of these three men's lives here and yet peter has to say something i find myself there far too often and as soon as I say it, I try grabbing the words and shoving them back in my mouth. Or, you know, backspace, backspace, backspace. But sometimes you just, once they're out, you can't get them out. And I heard, a, heard something many years ago. It said, the two things you can't take back in life are the bullets you shoot and the words you say. And I believe that. And so Peter had to say something. What does he say? He says, it is good for us to be here. And you're like, <laughs> He didn't say something all that dumb after all. And then he says, Let us build a temple. Well, good. That's maybe an admirable thing. To Moses, What? Stop now, Peter. And Elias, No, Peter, no. And finally he gets to Jesus and God the Father corrects the entire situation. He says, lest you be confused, the only one here worthy of anything is Jesus, my son. So it's kind of a unique story, but I identify with Peter. Peter's life, quite like I would say a lot of ours are, is very up and down. He's the epitome of a guy that had extreme highs and extreme lows. I think you could even characterize Peter's life into kind of three separate categories. Number one, of extreme faith. Peter displayed moments of faith that surpassed any of his peers. You remember the time when when Jesus was asking the disciples who do men say that I am? And, and they said, well, some say you're Moses, the others say you're Elias, some say you're just a prophet. And, uh, and Jesus looks at them and says, but who say ye that I am? And in a crowd of what we would consider experts on the matter, Peter was the one that stepped forward with confidence in his answer and boldness in his heart. And what does he say? Thou art Christ the son of the living God. And you see, Peter's life at times was characterized by moments of extreme faith. But didn't he have times where his life was characterized by just moments of fear? You remember when he was the only one that had the courage to step out of the boat? But do you remember what happens after that? He beheld all the, the waves and the, the tempestuous winds and, and all that was around him. And if he would have just stayed locked on Jesus, everything would have been fine for old brother Peter. But he began to worry about the exterior instead of focusing on the Lord. And what, what happens? His fears overwhelmed him. And what was happening on the inside just was uh, characterized by what took place on the outside. He began to sink. You see, he had moments of extreme faith. He also had moments of fear. He also had moments of real failure. I mean, I'm not talking about like we all mess up saying things with our mouth that we're not proud of or we do things in a moment that we're not proud of. But y'all, y'all recall the, the one extreme failure at least that we would all recognize in Peter's life, the moment when Jesus told every disciple, all shall be offended me this night. And yet Peter says, Lord, though all deny you, I will be the one that does not deny you. Peter, with the best of intentions, set out to honor God with everything that he could. And yet, when rubber met the road, he found himself warming by a fire. And the Bible says, maidens. Not big, strong, brawny men that could actually do something to Peter. Just maidens said, hey, you were with Jesus, weren't you? And what happens? Peter's failure begins to take place as he denies the Lord three times. Denies the Lord. No, I've not been with him. And then the Bible even says that he began to use speech that didn't really uh, 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 characterize him with Jesus. He began to use rough speech. He began to curse. Why? So that he could separate himself from the Lord. He had moments of great faith. He had moments of real... Failure. He also had moments of fear. If, if there's one person in all the Bible that would be a great character study on the evolution, and I know we don't like to use that word in Christianity, right? But But the evolution, or maybe a better word, the transformation that grace has in the Christian's life. Because you see, the same man that denied the Lord on this occasion is also the same man in Acts chapter 2 that stands up with a heart completely full of the Holy Ghost and preaches one of the most powerful sermons in all the Word of God. And we find as the New Testament begins to roll on that Peter is as instrumental in the New Testament local church as even the Apostle Paul. You see, Peter was a case study on the growth of grace in the Christian's life. He's a good guy to ask about this idea of growing in grace i'll never forget it was many years ago that me and my family or my family and me i think is the right way to say that one of you english ladies can correct me later if you want but uh, i think my family and me we went down to sea world and i was so excited it was my first time to ever go i was somewhere i would say around the age of five maybe six at the time Uh, And it's kind of unique because now, being a dad, I I see my daughters. We drove by Six Flags two different times uh, in the last week. And both times, both of my daughters, Six Flags! I'm like, girls, you want to go? And Caitlin's like, I want to ride the big ride. And Bailey's like, I want the small rides. (laughs) And I remember I was like Caitlin. I wanted to ride the big rides, man. And, And SeaWorld had just gotten, to my knowledge at least, A new ride called the Great White. Man, I was so excited. Me and my sister had talked about going. It was the first roller coaster that I ever remember. I I believe there were seven seats across. They were uh, much wider than a normal roller coaster. And it was the first one that I can ever remember where you just strapped in with the buckle over your chest and your feet dangled. Man, I was excited about this. We stood in line. I can't remember if I told you I'd be lying, but the line was quite uh, large, and I'll never forget. We get up to the uh, uh, the, the lineman, the line there where the well, I'll call him the gatekeeper is, and uh, and he has that little ruler thing, and it's it's at a ninety degree angle, and that angle represents how tall you must be to ride that ride. And I will never in my life forget going up to that man and him swinging that ruler over top of my head. And you know what that indicated? That I was not tall enough to ride that ride. And I looked at Mandy with big puppy dog eyes. I said, Mandy, they're not going to let me ride. And she said, too bad. <laughs> and she hopped on that thing. It did not affect her at all. I'll tell you what, if at that moment I could have just like grunted or just kind of done anything in my power to grow the height needed to get on that roller coaster, I would have absolutely done it. That's not the way that our height works, our physical height, just like it's not the way our spiritual growth works. The Bible says, which of you, by taking thought, can add one measure to his stature? You see, we can't just hope or, or wish or desire ourselves enough so that we would grow physically. I also believe we cannot do that spiritually. We must understand that growth is the fertilizer of the Christian, uh, uh, growth is the fertilizer, grace is the fertilizer of the Christian life. It is the thing that allows us to develop for God's glory. And you see, in our passage tonight, there are two verses, verse 17 and verse 18. And you say, Brother Andrew, I'm actually quite content where I am. But you see, verse 17 teaches us that there is no staying still in the Christian life. You're either growing or you're standing on slippery slopes. The Bible says that you need to uh, beware lest you would fall from your own steadfastness in verse 17. So you're either growing for the Lord or you're going from the Lord. That's simply the truth. So this evening we're going to take a look at grace and we're going to study it. And we're going to learn how we can implement it into our lives and begin to develop for the glory of God. So number one, how can we do this? Number one, we must experience God's grace, now this is so important, through love. And we've studied this, I believe we're on week five now. And in every study, or at least most of the studies for for sure, it is almost impossible to somehow dissect and separate love, grace, and mercy. They are perfect Partners. They work in harmony with one another. You see, God loved us. And when we failed in the garden, God's love made him make a choice. His love then inspired his mercy or his willingness to get involved in the situation and intervene. You see, mercy is withholding punishment that is deserved. And so, God, in his righteous and holy standards, He was well in the right to punish us, but his love inspired his mercy to get involved and his grace was the answer that his mercy was begging for. You see, grace is giving something that is not deserved. He withdrew our punishment and deposited a blessing from heaven. Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, come down to die on the cross for our sins so that we could have a home in heaven. We deserved none of that. But the foundation of both grace and mercy is love. How do we experience God's love? Well, number one, by receiving His love. The Bible tells us that Christians wouldn't know how to love properly if it wasn't knowing God. In fact, the Bible says in 1 John chapter 4 herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. He demonstrated just how much he loved us when he sent his son to die for us. The Bible says, for God so loved the world. And it's not just enough to love something unless you're willing to do something about it. He so loved us that he sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. You understand God demonstrated his love for us. And I'll tell you, this book that we're studying tonight is so incredibly deep. But there is no deeper concept in all the word of God than this very simple truth. God loves you. In fact, people get distracted while studying other things when I believe The deepest truth in all the word of God is this. God loves you. And you know what's amazing about God's love? Is God doesn't just love you when you're a sinner. You see, we talk about that a lot. We talk about how when we were at enmity with God, when we were an enemy of God, when we were a child of wrath, the Bible tells us in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. When we were yet without strength, Christ died for us. You see, the Bible teaches us that God loves sinners. You know, God doesn't just love sinners. He loves saints too. Did you know God not only loves, He loves everyone not even even if you're just not even if you're just not a sinner god loves you even if you're not a sinner god also loves you if you're not always in his will right. now maybe mistakenly so preachers have so preached against getting out of god's will that it seems like com- compassion was removed from that situation But I want you to understand that God loves the child of His that is not in His will. Now, He does not approve of what's going on, He does not like what's going on, but God still loves that child. Man, I can just picture the prodigal son's father seated on the porch in a rocking chair with two big old glasses of sweet tea, one for him and one for his son that would return home, waiting and longing for the day when he would get to embrace his son. You see, God not only loves sinners, God loves saints. God not only loves those that are in his will, God loves those that are out of his will. Did you know God also loves people? who are not always on the spiritual mountaintop? It's easy to see and sense God's love when everything is going right in our life. We look at the bank account and it seems to be chock full and the family's all smiling and everything's going right we ask what we're, where we want to go to lunch and everybody in harmony sings the same restaurant. I mean, that's when you know you're in harmony is when the whole family knows where they want to go. Boy, but 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 that's not always my life. You know, sometimes it's like me and my family can't get on the same page at all. You know, sometimes we have to look at the bank account and kind of groan a little bit. You know, sometimes everything is not perfect in my life, both mentally physically and spiritually and maybe i'm the only one but maybe you find yourself in that group too and it's easy to see and sense god's love when everything's going right but i want to just assure you tonight god still loves you even when you're not on your spiritual mountaintop his love may not always be quite as visible at that moment His love certainly might not be sensed quite as easily, but God's love is deeper, longer, stronger than any problem you have in your life. The deepest truth in God's word is God still loves you. God loves you. And one of the ways that we experience grace is through God's love, by receiving His love, but secondly, by reciprocating that love. God wants us to love Him back. I think the Bible tells us, the the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that He died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto Him which died for them. It is through God's love we find our motivation to love him back. He gave us love when we were so ugly and undeserving and yet we have the privilege of loving one who is always lovely and always worthy. First Corinthians chapter 13 has a lot to say about love and the Bible says, and now abideth faith, hope, and charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. You see, love is so strong and God's love for you is so strong and all he's asking is that we would experience his grace and then extend his grace back to him. If grace was a result of his love for us, how can we serve with grace if we do not first love? See, what I'm saying is, if grace is the result of God's love, Love brought his mercy into picture, which then encouraged his grace. How can we serve with grace unless our first foundation is love? God loved us. He then extended his grace. We love God. Therefore, we can serve and live for him with grace. God loves us. In fact, Ephesians chapter 6, as, as the Apostle Paul closes out the letter to the church at Ephesus, he says, Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. You see, grace is a product of the love that you have for God. One of my favorite hymns in all, uh, all of Christianity is the love of God. That hymn speaks so much to me and even as I set out to preach this point about experiencing God's grace through His love, every preacher ought to feel quite inadequate when they begin to speak on the depth of God's love for his children. You see, the hymn writer put it like this, The love of God is greater far than pen or tongue can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. Could we with ink the ocean's fill and were the skies of parchment made if every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean's dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. God loves you more than you can ever imagine. Now, I'll be really honest with you, sometimes it's hard to love me even when I am me. My wife was telling me the other day just how unlovable I can be sometimes. But you know that even at our worst moments, God loves us. And we will experience His grace active in our daily life. Grace is not abandoned at the moment of salvation. We experience it every day in realizing that God loves us. And we love Him back. The best way that we can grow in grace is experience His grace through His love. Number two, we can embrace God's grace through discipleship. We can embrace God's grace through discipleship you see verse number 17 uh, or verse 18 but grow in grace and 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 I hope you'll understand this the bible says and in the knowledge of our lord and savior Jesus Christ it is not enough to just learn about salvation and then try to use that as the foundation of your Christian life and, and and learn nothing else. You see, if all you have is a foundation, you have no structure. And, and, and Peter here is writing and he says, The foundation of the Christian's life is love. The foundation of the Christian life is grace, for that's where our salvation starts. But the Bible then goes on to say, And grow in grace And in the knowledge of your master. Learn about Jesus more and more each day. John chapter 13 through 17 is actually all the same sermon preached by Jesus. It is the sermon in the upper room preached to just a select handful of disciples. And in that sermon in John 14 verse 15 the Bible says, If ye love me, do you all know the rest of the verse? Keep my commandments. Amen. It's pretty simple. The master just requests obedience. And He goes on to say in verse 21, he that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. Huh? Well, now we're getting back to point one, aren't we? Love is displayed in obedience. Amen. If you have God's commandments and keep them, it shows that you love God. And then the Bible goes on to say, And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Now don't miss this. Verse 18 says, But grow in grace and in the what? knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So if we want to grow in knowledge, and if we want to grow in God's grace, the Bible in John 14 tells us that we can do that, and Jesus will directly have his hand in that. He will manifest himself to us. How? If we know God's will, his commandments, and do God's will, obeying. We like to doctorate up and we like to write books and we like to preach really long sermons and we like to we like to have conferences and retreats and charges and surrenders we like to have all these things but it's actually quite simple God expects his children to love him and live for him the master doesn't expect understanding he only expects submission and obedience I could remind you of a few of the greatest movies ever made. I I do my very best to avoid using movies as sermon illustrations because I don't know what your stance on movies is and uh, I don't want to offend anybody. But these two movies, I think, in particular, so perfectly illustrate this point that I, I have to use them, okay? The two movies are as follows. Rocky... Amen, can we all agree that that's a decent little little film? And then the karate Kid, okay, both of these films, obviously, well, I can't say obviously because I watched the clips today and and the karate Kid. I did not remember some of that and there, so amen, thank you for having a guardian angel on the TV as I was growing up. I appreciate that YouTube was not quite so spiritual, Amen. But, but what's unique about these movies is at each point, the, the, the fighters, both Rocky and The Karate Kid, have unique training experiences. You see, the trainer for The Karate Kid has him in the driveway cleaning his car and most everybody in here could quote at least one line from that movie, and Craig's over there like bottled up, trying not to shout it out from the mountaintops, and it is this, wax on, wax off. Wax on, wax off. And and then I even learned today that he actually has a Uh, Is his name Mr. Miyagi, is that right? Look at there, man, I tell you what, I'm on point tonight. I'm maybe not sleep deprived as I thought. Anyway, Mr. Miyagi has the Karate Kid, which I have no clue his name, but anyway, uh, he's painting a fence, he's sanding the floor, and he's also cleaning the car. And at one point, it all boils over as Mr. Miyagi comes home from fishing one day and the karate kid sees Mr. Miyagi coming from fishing. He's like, what are you doing? I've been home working all day and you're coming back from fishing and he quits. And Mr. Miyagi calls the karate kid back. And he begins to explain why he was doing what he was doing. You see, Mr. Miyagi looks at him and says, show me sanding the floor. And so the karate kid gets down and Mr. Miyagi says, no, stand up. And the kid begins to sand the floor. And then the, uh, Mr. Miyagi says, now wash the car. And, and, and the karate kid gets down again. Mr. Miyagi says, no, you stand up. And, and, and what it is, is Mr. Miyagi was teaching him defense as he was waxing the car and sanding the floor and painting the fence. With Rocky, I have no clue his trainer's name, which Craig, I'm sure you could help me with that. But, but the, the trainer's an older man with a lot of experience in the boxing arena and he's trained many boxers, but he's helping Rocky out. And one day the, 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 the coach, if you will, comes to Rocky and he's got a chicken under his arm. And they're in this back alley, deserted. There's no trash cans, there's no obstacles, there's no people, just him and Rocky. And he looks at Rocky, and he says, you're going to catch this chicken. And Rocky says, I'm a fighter, not a farmer. He says, you catch this chicken. He lets the chicken go. Rocky runs around for a little bit, and I love this. This might be my favorite line of the whole movie. Rocky takes a break after about 25, 30 seconds of chasing this chicken. He puts his hand on the wall and he says, I feel like a Kentucky fried idiot. (laughs) It's a good line. You see what the trainer was doing was trying to increase Rocky's agility, his speed. And he said, if you can catch this chicken, you can catch grease lightning. That's what the trainer says. In both cases, neither person understood the methods of the master. The master doesn't want you always to know his method. In discipleship, it may be as simple as just knowing what God wants you to do and doing it without asking question. Understanding that a sovereign God might have something in the works for you. Understanding that a God that can see tomorrow like it is today might see where you're going and might be preparing you today for that destination. But if we're going to know about our God, if we're going to submit in this area of discipleship and grow in grace through discipleship, we'll have to do it in two ways. Number one, a choice of contents. A choice of contents. You see Colossians chapter 3 verse 16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And then it goes on to say this. Singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. One of the surefirest ways that you can make sure that grace is constantly abiding in your life is this. Putting in spiritual things. I hate to get so youth pastory on you right now, but what goes in will eventually come out. Even Jesus taught a very simple principle, but those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart. A lot of Christians have no idea what it is to daily live on grace because they're daily living on trash. Whatsoever is in the world, the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, none of these are of the Father. And yet, by and large, it is the mass of what our entertainment is on a daily basis. It's what we live in. That's what we take in. And and frankly, that's the common practice in society, and so it's become the common practice in Christianity. Grace is to be nurtured like a child. In the heart carried like a baby, growing in the heart as you feed it spiritual things and psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making a melody unto the Lord. How, why do we do this? Because that is a way to ensure grace will stay in your heart. We do it, number one, by a choice of contents. And then number two, a choice of confidence. Confidence. You see, what you must understand is grace, or at least living in grace for the... Living with your daily supply of grace means that you're not borrowing from tomorrow's. Or depending on yesterday's overdraft. If you're going to live in grace daily, you must understand there's a trust that goes on between you and God. You must recognize that you just... Live for God today and God will take care of all sorts of things that you'll never be able to understand what He's doing. You can look back at uh, the Apostle Paul's life when the Apostle Paul says, there was given to me a, 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 a thorn in the flesh. And he says this, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. Now the Apostle Paul might be, in my estimation... Right up there with John the Baptist as the greatest Christian to ever live, apart from Jesus Christ Himself. And I don't know if you can really claim Jesus as a Christian because he can't follow himself. So the Apostle Paul is one of the greatest Christians, and we look at this verse as if it's a way to kind of uh, disprove. Man, he still struggled with stuff. But let's be honest. If we were to really estimate our lives, we probably have more than one messenger of Satan. We probably have more than one thorn in the flesh. One Bible student was going after their doctorate. They wrote their thesis on this verse. And they proposed that there are potentially 38 different theories as to what this thorn in the flesh could have been. Oh, you, you could read all sorts of different opinions on this matter. Uh, some believe it was eyesight. I, I really don't even know what I could tell you. I do know that in the New Testament, Paul writes large letters. That's it. He might just like Clifford the Big Red Dog or something like that. I'm not sure, but Paul writes large letters. But one Bible student proposed that there are as many as 38 different messengers of Satan to buffet them. I'll tell you what, he's doing pretty good if he only has one. He's like, I've got everything else kind of handled, but there's one thing that really gets under my craw. Do you know there's probably more than one thing that really gets in my craw? There can be all sorts of things that the devil will use in your life to derail you. Certainly, I mean, it goes without saying, temptation is one of those things. But I'm talking about things that are almost taboo in Christianity. Things like feelings of inadequacy. Feeling like what you are called to do on a daily basis is more than what you can handle. Feeling like you are disqualified, maybe, from service now because of skeletons from yesterday. You say, oh, there's no way I could do anything for God. I've got a record a mile long. There's no way I could do anything for God. What I've seen and what I've been through, I just I've seen the worst of humanity. There's no way I could hope for the best in humanity. Look, I don't know what the messenger of Satan might be in your life, but I'm here to tell you, you must trust in God because God told Paul this, my grace is sufficient for thee. Now, it could have been 38 different things according to one person. I don't know what his was, but I know God's answer for all 38 would be, my grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength. Man, can you think of how strong God is? Like, think about that. Yeah, someone asked one time, could God make a rock so big he couldn't move it? Well, I don't know. I don't think he can, but I think he could. There's no way, but there's certainly a possibility. You know, like, think about how strong and big God is. The earth is his footstool. He's got the whole world in his hands. In six days, he just said, hey, let there be. Now what are we going to do? I mean, God is so strong. And yet he says, my strength is made perfect. It comes to maturity and full development in the Christian life. How? (laughs) Through your areas of weakness. If you're going to grow in grace and experience it through this matter of discipleship, you've got to know about Jesus, you've got to live for Him and love Him. You've got to put in good things and you've got to have a a confidence in his providing hand. So we've studied too. We've got to hurry because frankly, I'm getting tired. Number one, experience God's grace through his love. Number two, embrace God's grace through discipleship. Man, think of, I'm just getting all preachy and a little giddy and excited, but how awesome is it that the God of the universe wants a relationship with somebody like you? How about we just embrace that and welcome love and blessing and a friend that loveth better than any brother, one that demonstrated the greatest love ever because he laid down his life for his friends. Man, that God loves you. I'm getting preached. I'm sorry, guys. I'm getting distracted. Let's just keep moving. I don't want y'all to get excited too. That would be terrible. Number three. If we're going to grow in grace, we must learn how to exercise God's grace through service. Look, But grow in grace, verse 18, grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And then it goes on to say to him, be glory both now and forever. A uh, cross reference to this verse might be our theme verse actually. Unto him be glory in the church. It might just be that God wants to mature you and make you so that you can serve him. It may just be that you are so unique to a person or people in this church that no one else can serve them the way that you could and God is now working in your life to see that come to fruition. I believe that can happen. I believe that God has a plan. And I'm not, man, I'm getting all youth pastory on you tonight. But I believe God has a plan for everyone in this building. You say, Brother Andrew, I've got a lot of gray hair. You know what the Bible says about gray hair? You're full of wisdom. Not that one, but others (laughs) in the room. Look. God has a purpose and a calling for everyone's life. And he he doesn't just abandon his children when they get too old. God wants to use you. Say, Brother Andrew, I'm going blind. Me too. Get over it. Say, Brother Andrew, I'm losing hair. Me too. And I'm struggling with it. Are you? You see, God still has a plan regardless of what age of life or what stage of life you're at. So how are we going to exercise God's grace through service? Well, John 1, 14 tells us, and we studied this week one, didn't we? This was our verse that we studied. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of, what's the next word? Grace and truth. Week one, we studied this, the face of grace. Paul, uh, 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 Paul, the Apostle John looks up as he's baptizing converts and he sees on the bank there, he looks and sees Jesus and it is all he can do to contain himself and he says, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world. He saw the very face of grace.